Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Defiant Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Ruthie Bowles, founder of Defy the Status Quo, a branding and marketing consultancy. This podcast is for the business owners and professionals who have seen the status quo in their industry and are ready to do things differently. We're here for the contrarians, mavericks, and rebels. On the Defiant Business Podcast, we'll talk about marketing, sales, client and customer experiences, finances, and amazing entrepreneur journeys that show that none of us are alone. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everybody. Welcome to an episode of the Defiant Business Podcast. I am your host, Ruthie Bowles, and I am the founder of Defy the Status Quo, a personal branding and marketing consultancy. I am thrilled to have Mike Aben today on the podcast. He's the CEO of Bookshelf, the media curation platform known as a medium meets Pinterest. How about that? Two of like my favorites. So he began his career as an attorney, and we're going to get into that, but moved into the media and tech space in 2014 and started building businesses around a new concept, the influencer. He was optimistic about the digital creator space, but he was frustrated by the types of content that were the most successful on digital platforms. Y'all know what we're talking about. And this led him and his co-founders to create the platform Bookshelf. So Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we've got a whole bunch of synchronicities here between Mike and I, so I feel like I already know him. So I came up with a pretty off-the-wall question this time, one that has never been asked on the podcast before. So, Mike, between you and your co-founders, who is the most likely to survive the zombie apocalypse? That's a good question. So I have two co-founders, myself, Justin Catalogo, Andrew Boggs, and we definitely operate via consensus as a team. But... In the event of a zombie, I guess it, it goes to the question of what do you need to survive a zombie apocalypse? And I perhaps selfishly going to say myself would be the most likely to survive because as the quote unquote CEO, I am constantly thinking long term and also backup plan after backup plan after backup plan. Like if this goes wrong, how do we fix it? If that goes wrong, how do we fix that? And so my mindset is definitely focused on ultimate end goals, long-term vision, and making sure that we achieve everything that we need to to get there. Nothing against my other co-founders are amazing at what they do, but perhaps you know it's tough for me to say I wouldn't survive. I will say that, you know, Justin, I've seen him do, you know, 360 dunks. So he definitely has the physicality aspect. And Boggs is, you know, very, very much the host of the party. So he might be able to form his own tribe. So we all have like different, different ways that we all could um provide value in a zombie apocalypse. But I would say myself, because perhaps I'm I'm also an attorney, so maybe that makes me more, more suited for these for these types of situations. I hope that's a good answer. I don't know. The one with the gun is probably what I would say. <laughs> All right. I, I like that. I like that. So I ha- I too have given thought to the zombie apocalypse. And it sounds like if y'all were together, you would be a pretty solid tribe of your own with the different skill sets that you bring to the table. So it makes sense then, right? If you can survive the zombie apocalypse together, then y'all would, you know, absolutely crush it as a business team. So that makes sense. I am the, I have the chickens and the ducks and the goats down here in Maryland. So people sometimes are like, you have animals like that. That's so weird. I'm like, okay, wait till the zombie apocalypse happens. Y'all are going to be wanting to come down here. And so that would be me. I'm also a people person. So I would ally, I would ally myself with the person with the guns and be like, here, have some milk, stay healthy. 
Oh, thank you so much. That was fun. Thank you for answering that question. So I do have another question, predictably, but I am curious. So you you started out as an attorney, which is an achievement in and of itself, right? To be an attorney. I, it was a toss up for me. Yeah. I watched a lot of CSI and Law and Order growing up. I couldn't decide what I wanted to be. And then I joined the Army. So but what made you go from being an attorney to moving into the tech space? You know, uh, like a lot of lawyers, I went to law school not wanting to be a lawyer, or not necessarily wanting to be a lawyer. It was 2009, and it was a really interesting opportunity. And so I, I jumped at the, I went to Columbia and jumped at the chance to go to Columbia Law School and, and learn from an amazing faculty and from my peers. And what I found was that despite not necessarily wanting to be an attorney, I was very, very passionate about the media in tech space, there was a lot happening. And, and most people in law school go do like a big internship their second year at the law firm that they'll work at after school. My take was I'm going to do something and learn what I'm passionate about. So I actually went down to Nashville and worked on music for a guy that was Johnny Cash's personal attorney for like 40 years, a legend in the country music space. And I took the opportunity to like really learn this business and went back to law school for my third year and wrote my legal research paper on the music business as a function of technology. Like how do you actually monetize IP in the real world? It doesn't exist. So with music, it had started with sheet music. You would sell the composition. And then there was the record, and that was super, super profitable. And I was writing all about streaming and different laws and different antitrust aspects around that and why you didn't have a Spotify before 2010, even though it was technologically feasible. Long story short, no one was hiring for a new media attorney with minimal experience. I had just really been passionate about this space. And so I actually took a job at a large corporate law firm doing private equity and M&A. But still, like, I would read the, the, new, the new matters every Monday. And anytime there's anything entertainment or media related, I would call up the partner and be like, yeah, I'm a first year, but like, let me help you on this. And I was actually quite successful. But ultimately, if I had stayed at that firm, I would have, I, I knew where it was going to end up. And that was not where I wanted to go. I had started practicing when I was 24. So I was quite young. And so when I was 26, I was like, this is not it for me. I sort of had my quarter life crisis and I quit and bought a car and drove across the country for a month. It was awesome. I felt like I was like, Hemingway meets Jack Kerouac. I'm, I'm doing it. And I got to, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm neither of those. And, and so I got <laughs> to, I got to Los Angeles and there was this new concept called influencer. There was these things called multi-channel networks and they were essentially aggregating all of the biggest YouTube accounts. This is before Instagram was big, before uh, Facebook had launched any monetization. Vine was like up and coming at that point. And it was fascinating to me that these new types of creators are able to amass huge audiences. And I was essentially put in, in charge of like, how do you monetize that besides just slanging products in your video? And so to me, it was fascinating because like, all right, you can do merchandising, you can do licensing, you can do touring. There's all these new business models that were opened up because the entire distribution had shifted. You used to have to have a centralized publisher that had an audience that could monetize your creative output where now the creative output could directly aggregate their own audience and drive value from that. And so to me, that was like a fascinating entree into this entertainment space. And that's how it really started getting into, and, and, and it's, an, it's enabled by tech and it's enabled by changes. And But I'm, I wait more for the macro change to recognize a trend as opposed to saying, okay, we now have capacitive touch, we can make a touch screen. Like that's a little bit more on the ground type tech advancement. I'm looking more at trends and what is possible 
given the changes in consumer habits and the technology they have available to them. That is awesome. Yeah, I, I'm interested, like the IP space is something that I've heard about a lot. And, you know, there's a balance between, you know, you've got your audience and you want to make new things, but then you also don't want to be ripped off. And it's really hard in the entertainment space for sure. And so I'm, I'm interested to see where this kind of NFT concept goes. I have some people in my network who have been talking about it quite a bit, you know, some artists who are creating their own NFTs. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. I don't create anything like that. So maybe it's just me. I'm still confused as to if there's a secondary market for NFTs. Like I can understand why someone would buy it because like that's cool. But is someone else going to buy it from you? I struggle to understand that. Yeah, that's that is something that's kind of part of it too. I am interested in seeing. And then of course, I mean the I mean the comparison or or the tangent of that or the birth or the source of that would have been like Bitcoin, right? And I'm I'm still not completely sold on that as like something that has independent value in and of itself. But it's like you said, people are willing to buy Bitcoin. Right. So yeah, <laughs> currency. So it's it's worth what people say it's worth or what they're willing. Right, exactly. Ever since we got off the gold standard. So, I mean, this is a whole other conversation. It really is. <laughs> as far as NFTs go, I think it's interesting to me as a unique marker and identifier for pieces of content. Like when I was working in music, there's this huge issue of clearances of rights and copyrights and who owns what. And I was like, well, if you could just NFT all that, it would be really easy to track everything. But mm-hmm. it's so uh, muddied right now that it would take a while before that's implementable. Absolutely. Okay. So you, you saw a lot of this opportunity and like, okay, I, I do not want to remain an attorney. So now I have, I've moved into this space. How did you go from, from, you know, looking at media and music and, and all of that in, in developing this idea with your co-founders for Bookshelf? You know, studying media business models one thing that was common was that there were so many companies that tried to do something cool and innovative and just got sued for copyright infringement, things not being clear. And what was fascinating to me was that you now have all of this content instantly accessible and fully cleared, like zero marginal distribution costs and zero marginal clearance costs. And so any song, any video, any book, any article, any podcast, like any tweet, any Instagram post, any photo, like all of this is immediately accessible. That's amazing. It's like an entire infinite universe of content, but platforms people were using were inefficient. And, you know, what is an influencer? It's kind of like a pejorative term because loud kids that look good on screen and that usually fall into low cost, high volume content, at least on YouTube. And so what I mean by that is like, if you're paying money to make content, you're probably not making any money. So everything is pranks or vlogs or beauty or gaming. And to us, that was a miss. You know, that was only part, that was, that was just one solution that was enabled by this new technology environment of like everyone having a screen available, mm-hmm. everyone having internet access to actually get it and having all this content easily creatable and easily distributable. And so to us, there was this huge universe that was being untapped that was really, really great and wasn't getting any daylight because the algorithmic curation on these platforms that people are relying on for their consumption just cares mostly about getting a reaction, headlines, provocation, look at me, this is what I'm doing. 
but where's the, Hey, I read this. I listened to this. I watched this. This is really dope. This is really cool. Check it out. The same way the stuff that you thought was great, you would put on your actual bookshelf. And so we took this concept and we thought that it was a solution to a lot of the issues we were seeing in content, namely that the creators didn't have a platform to express themselves through their taste and their expertise. And that consumers didn't have a platform that was really focusing on taste and expertise. And so we'll put those together, you know, it, it truly was a multi-year project of nights and weekends, just thinking about how does this actually work? What does it look like? What's the tech like? And what actually got us started was uh, we found someone to build it, Aaron. And what we found Aaron was most social media platforms don't make their API public, but Reddit does. And Reddit's actually quite similar as far as information hierarchy to Bookshelf. And so there's a lot of private Reddit apps that private developers have made. And we had hit all of these developers up to try to see if they could build Bookshelf. And we finally found one who got the vision and believed in the vision and built an amazing product. And that was just to get us started. And so that was a backend in iOS. We then built an amazing web front end as well that integrated into the same backend. And we launched and it resonated and people started using it passionately. And it's been a, a fascinating ride ever since. That is amazing. <laughs> that it seems like you all had identified the problem and you said you spent those nights and weekends and it was brainstorming, but you you kept getting out there and then found somebody to help you. So not to imply that it was just like easy or something, but there's something to be said for persistence. Yeah, right? it, like, it was a passion project and it was mostly because it was a product that I wanted. Because I think I have good taste in certain areas. And like, I wanted to share that with people. And I got a lot of satisfaction from sharing really fascinating YouTube videos that I had stumbled across or like Craigslist posts that were like, there's like this Craigslist misconnection post. It's like absolutely beautiful. And like, wow, this needs to have more traction. Like, how do we do this? And so we wanted to build a platform for that. I mean, frankly, I remember walking into the office of the CEO at the company I was at and it's like, there's this amazing vine. It's like amazingly edited. The music is so awesome. He's, he looks at me and he's like, Mike, it's not our business. And that was a moment of clarity of like, well, what, how can you make this into a business? Mm, yeah. How, how do I make this my business? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but I, I, I love that. And so I can hear it like when you're talking about it too, is that like you said, though, you, you and your co-founders built the app that you wanted. Right. To create a content environment, an environment saturated with content, but the types of content that you wanted to see, the types of content that you, you know, you wouldn't open up the app and immediately experience a spike in blood pressure or something. It's not just the the type of content, it's also the randomness and allowing people to express themselves and seeing a wide variety of different types of content. Like you are what you eat, and this applies to the content that you consume as well. And so by providing a better content diet, you get a benefit. You get a more well-rounded, like you said, lower blood pressure experience similar to like, I mean, I, where I really think we fit in is the idea of what magazines and specialty publications used to be, like where you would get people with taste, an editor, a publisher saying, these are the articles and the, the, the writings that we're going to have this month and really choosing it and selecting it carefully. Um, trying to recreate some of that process within content curation. And not only that, but finding really interesting people. So once we launched the product, we wanted to provide day one value. So we started onboarding 
you know, PhDs and astronauts and doctors and scientists, and we, you know, obviously starting with the knowledge communities and then branching yeah. out into all these other spaces and doing it strategically. And that allowed us to just have really dope content and really interesting people that you wouldn't find anywhere else. I love that. And actually, that leads us into our next episode. So I'm going to go ahead and close this off here. So that way, everybody kind of gets that hint there. So just in case you forgot, my name's Ruthie. I'm your host of the Defiant Business Podcast. And today I had with me Mike Abend, the CEO of Bookshelf, which is basically medium meets Pinterest. And we talked today about how he went from being an attorney to migrating over into the media and tech space to then co-founding and, you know, co-creating and co-founding Bookshelf with his partners. And so that is today's episode, but be sure to check back next week for our next episode, because Mike is going to talk to us about a bit more about the problem that he and his partners identified in terms of our, our media ecosystem. So Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Defy the Status Quo Biz, and the link is in this episode's description. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.